So I was there in 86. They, they had an awesome hockey team. They were strong. They were big. They could play. They had talent. Uh, they had it going on in the net. And then you come and provide that spark in 89, right? They end up winning the mm. Stanley Cup. And I have been traded. So we have something else in common. They lost the Spock, the Canadians. Yes. <laughs> and yes. the Flames gained the Spock in you. Right, but right. the guys you mentioned, um, those smaller players, and uh, to look up to those guys, yeah, but none of them played like you. And the one that maybe did was Ken Lindsman, right? Ken yes, Lindsman yes, was the same yes. type of guy. He could put up the numbers, and he was always a guy that when I was on the ice, you better have your head up. And I remember in New York, the first time I played against you, I forget what you said to me. He said, hey, where's your bucket? And I never heard that one before. And I said, what, what bucket? And you said, the one that carried a fucking puck, you said. I'm I felt like, I felt, I, I, I was like, I felt, I'm, how fucking stupid am I to get sucked into that one? I never heard it. I mean, that little prank. That's awesome. But That's uh, awesome. that was hilarious. When I stepped on the ice, I never backed down. And I never stayed down. And I was vicious and I was malicious. And I don't care. <laughs> I'm alive. He's a freaking madman. Look at him going to town. That'll be a suspension. Well, let's get cranking here. And here's where I want to start. Um, I usually like going back to the beginning, and we'll get to some of that, but... Theo, you know, we've met over the years and we've talked quite a few things and we have a lot in common uh, when it comes to the addiction piece, Tim also. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. uh, what I want to look at is the Hall of Fame. Now, here's a guy who has the numbers you have, 1,084 games, 1,000, what, 80-something points, right? You have over a point a game. And then you not only do that in the regular season, you do it in the playoffs too. Mm -hmm. And you have yet to be recognized uh, for the Hall of Fame. And I, I'm just going to quickly say, I think it's because of your past and um, what you went through in your life that, I don't know. And today you're outspoken conservative voice, which is fine. But I, I think that all has to do with, we don't want Theo in the Hall of Fame. What do you think? Well, I didn't know the Hockey Hall of Fame was a political institution. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, um, um, you know, I really had no interest in politics whatsoever. Had never voted, had never nothing. And then, uh, you know, in 2015, I actually voted for Trudeau uh, in the election. Because I wasn't happy with some of the policies that Stephen Harper had towards justice and, and uh, you know, criminals. And I thought, you know, that Justin would be a guy that would bring in a little bit more rule of law and, and, uh, and whatnot. He was talking that way anyways. And, uh, and then that was around the same time that Trump came down the escalator in, uh, um around that time and, you know, decided he was going to run for president. And I was like, what the hell is this guy doing running for president of the United States? And that's when I really started following politics. And, you know, shortly after Justin got voted in, I, I could see the country going in a different direction, you know, a direction that uh, um, 
didn't hold to my own personal values. And, uh, you know, here we are seven years later, uh, you know, heading towards uh, communism. And, uh, and uh, that's a scary proposition, you know, and, and people often say to me, why are you so involved? Well, you know, I want to be able to look my kids in the eye and say to them, I did everything within my power to stop you know, this direction that we're, that we're taking. So, um, and you know, what's interesting, Chris and Tim is that, you know, they want to put hockey players in a box, you know, and, uh, we're, we're not allowed to have opinions. We're not allowed to have a voice, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, those of us who struggle with addictions, you know, we're carrying around secrets, and, you know, there's a saying in 12 step, you know, you're only as sick as your secrets. Well, for 27 years, I was carrying around a secret that I couldn't tell the world. And there was no there was no space for it. There was no place for me to tell this story, which caused me to be sick physically, emotionally and spiritually to the point where I had a fully loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger and end my life because I was living in so much emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. And I tried absolutely everything on the planet to get rid of it. But the one thing I hadn't tried was honesty. And, you know, they say the truth will set you free. Well, when I wrote the book in 2009, yeah, the truth set me free. And so my political stance is I'm standing in my truth, you know, and if people don't like it, I don't really care. Because I'm standing in my truth. I'm standing in what, what I believe, you know, and, and uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm a prairie kid who worked extremely hard to get to the NHL. Uh, I worked even harder to stay there. Um, you know, my body is wrecked from playing. <laughs> Join the club. You know, you know what I mean? And, Join the club. Uh, you know, sometimes I think I think to myself, was it, was it really worth it? Right. Was it really worth it because of the way that I feel today? Because at the end of the day, uh, what's really important is, is your health, you know, and I've, I've realized that over the years that, you know, my physical, emotional and spiritual health is, is all I have at the end of the day. And, uh, and sometimes I think to myself, you know, was it really worth it? You know? And so, and so when it comes to, you know, to answer your question about the Hall of Fame, you know, it's out of my hands. The work's already been done. You know, the everything's there. Um, if they decide to keep me out of the Hall of Fame because of my off-ice stuff, then it's not really a Hockey Hall of Fame. Well, um, yeah, and I couldn't agree more. And I, I say that, uh, you know, I saw you quoted uh, the pinnacle, uh, one of the, the highlights of your career is winning that gold medal in 2002, right? Mm -hmm. So um, it's not like this wouldn't be a huge honor for you. And I think you deserve it. And I, I, I don't say that because you're my friend, but you, you put the numbers up. I watched your career. I played against you. And then I watched it from afar. Um, and I, I look at Pat Burns. And, and this is really pissed me off about Pat Burns that they considered him and here he is dying of cancer on his deathbed and they could not give him the, the courtesy and have the decency that honor that man in front of his peers 
before he died. And he dies and they put him in the next year. The sons of bitches. It pissed me off. And I'm just, I guess I'm glad I'm not involved in that. But let's, you know, let's go back, I guess, to the beginning in the sense that a guy your size, and I told Tim this story and I said it to Barry, but guy your size, um, how does a guy your size make it in the NHL? And I want to go back to the time we spoke and you said to me, you were talking about a playoff series when you were with Moose Jaw, and I think it was New West, I'm not sure, but they had a, go- a goon squad, and they mm-hmm. were going to goon you, and when mm-hmm. the, the opening face-off, you were out there. T- tell me that story, and then <laughs> h- how much did that, like, how much, like, confidence did that give you, that one time right there mm-hmm. to move forward and play in the NHL? Did that help you? Well, I played as a 16-year-old in the Western Hockey League, and I think I was like five foot three, 125 pounds, soaking wet. I played my first year in the Western League, and we went up to Prince Albert uh, to play. And Prince Albert had, you know, the best team in junior hockey, and they proved that at the end of the year by winning the Centennial Cup. So here I am, I'm standing on the blue line and I look over on the other side of the rink and there's Baumgartner and Manson standing standing on the blue line and they're D partners. And the first shift of that game, I got hit by Manson so hard I thought I broke every bone in my body. And I said to myself, that can never happen again. And I realized that my hockey stick was the great equalizer while I was playing. And so I became very, uh, you know, Stan Makita like with my stick and, and, uh, and what I did is I played a very psychological game out on the ice. Um, I knew that I was going to compete at the highest level. You were going to have to basically kill me in order to, you know, neutralize me. But I realized early on in my junior career that 75%, 80% of the guys were bluffers, right? And all I had to do was look them in the eye to figure that out because I was willing to die in order to win. And if you weren't willing to go to that length, then I owned you on the ice. I could take you anywhere and do anything I wanted to you. And I know that there would never be any pushback. And then there was guys that competed at that level, at that highest level. And that's, those are the guys that I have the most respect for. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they made me better, right? Because I had to dig deeper inside of me and find things inside of myself that I didn't know that I had. And obviously I was very skilled and very talented, but you know, if talent doesn't work, you have no chance of winning. But if your talent works, 95%, 99% of the time you're going to win. And I didn't want to be one of those guys that, you know, had a cup of coffee in the NHL. I wanted to have an impact and, you know, and, well, and, go, and going to Calgary in 1989, like I couldn't have been put in a better situation because I was the fourth line centerman for the Calgary Flames. And guess what? I got to play against the other team's shitty fourth line. So in a game, 
you know, the top two lines usually cancel themselves out. Yeah. And it's the third and fourth lines that can have an impact, right? And I was playing with Timmy Hunter and Brian McClellan. Brian McClellan was a really good player. He had some skill and he could he could put the puck in the net. And so, you know, we we had lots of opportunities only playing maybe you know, six to 10 minutes a night, but in those six to 10 minutes in a night, you can have a a huge impact on the game. Well, you said the 80% bluffers. Okay. What did you do with the 20% who weren't? How did you deal with the 20% that weren't bluffing? And you remember the story you told me when Mm -hmm. that face off, it was in the playoffs and they sent the goon squad out against you and you come up and fucking right in the chops. Yeah, I didn't even put my stick on the ice. I cross-checked the guy right in the face and knocked all of his teeth out, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, back then, that would have been a, like a 40- or 50-game suspension now. But back then, it was like a five-minute penalty. And and uh, um, and I, I could never be intimidated, you know. Um, I, I think uh, – the small guys who haven't had success are the guys that, you know, uh, didn't push back. You know, they allowed the other guys to, you know, to take advantage of them. And I never, ever once backed down from any. I remember one night we were in, uh, we were in LA and, and uh, there was a kind of a scrum and somehow Marty and Marty McSorley and I um, kind of got, we were away from the pile and Marty hauled off and he suckered me right in the face. And I don't think I'd ever been hit that hard in my life. And so I was, I was on the ice and you know, the fucking Tweety birds are flying around my head and I'm like, you know what, mother, I got to get up. So I got up and I looked him right in the eye and I said to him, is that all you got? (laughs) Theo. So like for me, for me, like when I think of a, a guy, you know, that kind of paved the way or like a small player, like you're the guy. Now, did you have someone, I mean, were you the first or was there anyone in the league? Like I can't recall before you that you looked up to that was a small player or were you kind of the first? Well, one? The, I, I think Matt's Nasland was probably one of the first guys that, uh, you know, I really, I really enjoyed watching play Denny Savard, Dennis Marouk, you know, guys, small, any small guy, you know, that was having success, uh, you know, in the league at that time was obviously gave me hope and, you know, gave me inspiration to, to keep going. But, uh, but like I said, um, when I got to Calgary in 1989, I couldn't have been mentored by a better group of guys. There were so many amazing quality people on that team and they taught me how to be a pro and they taught me how to act away from the rink and, you know, get involved in charity work and, and all that stuff. And so, um, uh, I just played my own style. You know, I didn't emulate myself after anybody, you know, I just went out and, and, you know, tried to do my job the best that I could. And, and, uh, um, you know, when I first got to Calgary, you know, they didn't even care if I scored a goal, you know, I was more, I was more of a, uh, a momentum changer guy. I was more of an energy guy which is, I, I believe, which is what the team needed at that time. You know, that, that group had been together for such a long time and hadn't really uh, reached the pinnacle of, of, of their own expectations. And I was a guy that came in there and provided that spark and, and that, 
you know, momentum changing play. You put them over the hump and you did because Mm -hmm. I was there in 86. They they had an awesome hockey team. They were strong. They were big. They could play. They had talent. Uh, They had it going on in the net. And then you come and provide that spark in 89, right? They end up winning the Mm -hmm. Stanley Cup. And I have been traded. So we have something else in common. They lost the Spock, the Canadians. Yes. And yes. the Flames gained the Spock in you. Right, but right. the guys you mentioned, um, those smaller players, and uh, to look up to those guys, yeah, but none of them played like you. And the one that maybe did was Ken Lindsman, right? Ken yes, Lindsman yes, was the same yes. type of guy. He could put up the numbers, and he was always a guy that when I was on the ice, you better have your head up. And I remember in New York, the first time I played against you, I forget what you said to me. He said, hey, where's your bucket? And I never heard that one before. And I said, what, what bucket? And you said, the one that carried a fucking puck, you said. I'm like, I felt like, I felt, I, I, I was like, I felt, I'm, how fucking stupid am I to get sucked into that one? I never heard it. I mean, that little prank. That's awesome. But That's uh, awesome. that was hilarious. And we got to meet years later. But um, so... All right, we go back to junior hockey if we can. I just, you know, I don't want to get bogged down on it, but it's a big part of your story and the trauma. We know mm. trauma, uh, a lot of people who suffer from trauma during their lives end up yeah. in some way uh, with in addiction or alcoholism. That being yep. said, um, 14 years old, going away from home, playing junior hockey, and then um, – you're in a situation where um, somebody in authority takes advantage of you in a way that is just fucking horrendous and sickening. Mm -hmm. What the hell? And I guess this is part of the armor that you were able to put on and protect yourself. You had to learn how to do that, but can you get into that and how that really, how were you able to fucking play hockey and deal Mm. with that shit? Why yeah. it was going on? Not even. No, let's not even talk about the NHL part. Right at that time, how difficult that had to be. <laughs> oh. Well, I knew, I knew I was in big trouble, and I knew that it was going to be really hard for me to get out of that situation. And, uh, um, but I also had dreams and aspirations too, right? So. Um, and I knew that if I told that first and foremost, I wouldn't be believed. Mm-hmm. And then second of all, that, that would be the end of my hockey career. Right. So I just kind of kept it inside and, and, uh, and dealt with it. Um, but it wasn't too long after that, that I discovered alcohol as a, you know, as a coping mechanism, which kind of, you know, uh, um, you know, I would say that my addiction at the end of the day really saved my life. Mm-hmm. You know, I get it, you. It, it, it truly did because, uh, you know, the more numbed out I was, the less I had to think about, you know, that that incident in my life. But, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I was just a kid that that was so focused on his dream uh, of, of, you know, wanting to be a professional hockey player that I would have sacrificed pretty much anything to, you know, to make that happen. You were finding uh, a way to survive. Right. And yeah. Yeah. And you were quoted as saying that, uh, 
that guy, and I don't want to fucking say his name, mm-hmm. but that guy destroyed your belief system. What did you mean by that? And, and how did it affect your belief system? Well, I believe that, you know, sexual molestation is like a living murder, right? Because what it does is it steals probably the single most important thing, and that's innocence, right? Innocence, trust, um, you know, uh, all those things that, that, you know, most kids get who are in a, you know, secure family environment, you know, they get love and they get all these things. And, and, uh, um, you know, that was stolen from me at 14 years old. And, uh, and so, you know, for the majority of my adult life, I I struggled in, in relationships, you know, I, I, I didn't trust, um, you know, I was promiscuous myself, you know, there was a lot of things that, you know, that, that I've been able to go back and apologize for, for, for that type of behavior. But, um, you know, it truly is like a living murder. You know, there, there's a piece of, there's a piece of you that gets taken away that you never get back, you know? And, and I lived, you know, the majority of my life, uh, with that piece missing inside of me. But what I was left with was a lot of shame, a lot of guilt, and a lot of anger and and when you, and to me you know anger was uh, a thing that i really used to use to my advantage when i it was an asset for when you. I, it became yeah. an when asset when i got when i got to junior and when i got to the nhl you know people people thought i was a bit crazy and a bit uh you know things weren't but i used that to my advantage right it, because as a small player, if you can't get room on the ice to do what you do best, which is bring your skill to the to the arena, if I if I didn't get any room out there, uh, I would have been just you know another small guy who had a cup of coffee and played. And so I used that anger to create to create room and create space. And uh, you know I wanted you to believe that that I was so unpredictable. You didn't know whether I was going to kiss you or cut your eye out. And I wanted, I wanted my opponents to have that in the back of their mind that, that, uh, that, uh, anything was possible. And, uh, I was, like I said, I was willing to do whatever it takes to win. And if that meant, uh, you know, swinging my stick around your face or whatever, you know, I was willing to do it. Man, that's, uh, yeah, you probably to yourself were, you didn't even know, you were unpredictable probably to yourself, I can only imagine, right? Like, you didn't know, did you feel like you weren't good enough just as a person, like, in, in life, oh, yeah. you know, yeah. right? Like, that's a that's a scary place. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's, there's, um, while I was writing my second book, um, we sort of had an aha moment about what trauma teaches us, and trauma teaches us four core things. Uh, that become sort of our core beliefs of who we think we are. So the first one is abandonment and neglect. Second one is I'm not good enough. Third one is I'm not lovable. And then the fourth one, which is, you know, our opioid fentanyl and heroin users is, is do I even exist in the world? Right. And that's what I, 
that's what I believed about myself. I never felt good enough, never felt lovable. You know, every relationship, I thought the person was going to leave me, you know, these kind mm-hmm. of things. And so, so when I was rewiring all of that stuff, which is, is what we try to do in, in therapy is try to rewire all of those traumatic experiences, you know, I had to, you know, really start to have a relationship with myself because before I, I never had a relationship with myself. I never looked after myself, never slept properly, never ate properly. You know, I hated working out. I hated practice, you know, but when it was time to play the game and you throw a puck on the ice, I will give you absolutely everything I have uh, uh, all the time. But, you know, when I started to when I started to love myself, when I started to take care of myself, that's when, you know, my life really started to change was when I made a consistent effort to, you know, look after myself. So and that was a while. I mean, obviously, you, you went through the this entire- is a, it's a it's a lifetime journey. You know, yeah. that, Chris, yeah. you know, I'm I'm in therapy for the rest of my life and uh, I'm, I'm I'm OK with that because. Every time I put myself in a therapeutic process, I, I continue to get better and I have more, more uh, understanding of who I am and what makes me tick and what my triggers are. And so, you know, I'm constantly uh, working, you know, on myself, you know, all the time because um, I know if I don't, you know, yeah. it only takes, you know, it only takes one sip of that stuff to, yeah. to get you back on that merry-go-round you know and and uh you know i don't want to do that and i i believe me i know that as well as anybody and you know we met back in 2000 you and i and mm-hmm. um right now here today is the longest stretch i've had seven years wow um and Congrats. um thanks awesome. buddy and it just um it, it <laughs> if you don't pay attention that's what happens and Today I'm paying attention, and it certainly is a work, always a work in progress. But enough about me. And and you know, so you 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 go through your junior career and you get away from that guy. Yeah. What what the hell? How, what type of feeling was that for you? Was that, you know, were you like did you feel that relief? Did you like, I'm free now. I don't have to deal with that. I know it's probably still there. Obviously what Mm -hmm. happened to you, Mm -hmm. you never, that scar, Mm -hmm. that pain, but what happened when you got away from him in that situation? It was a huge relief. And, uh, um, and, and then I could resume back into, you know, really focusing on, you know, getting, getting to the NHL, right. You know, I had, I had three really big years after he left. Um, and, uh, you know, played in two world juniors. I was the captain of Canada's national junior team. The punch up uh, and pistony. Yeah. Well, that was the year before that was the year before. And then the year after year after we went back, uh, to Moscow and, uh, I was the captain of, uh, of the junior team and, uh, we beat uh, we beat the Russians, and they had a line of Fedorov, McGilney, and Burray was there. Oh my god, <laughs> that's insanity! Yeah. yeah, but you know we had guys like Mark Recchi and Adam Graves and Robbie DeMaio and Joey Sackick and Trevor Linden, and yeah, J- Jimmy Waite was our goalie, and uh, 
we beat the Russians 3-2 in the same rank that Paul Henderson scored the goal in 1972. <clears throat> so it just kind of added that little cherry on top, uh, you know, knowing that, uh, you know, Team Canada went That's into awesome. that build. Yeah. That's awesome. I play. I had uh, Serge Savad, um, Paul Henderson, and Evan Conway on uh, one um, on my podcast, and they were awesome. It was just awesome to to talk with those guys. But so so, what was it like for you now when you get away from there, and how was it dealing with other coaches now? You did you have? I, I mean, yeah, that was that one person, but what was? How were you able to trust this new coach all of a sudden that you have? And did you have some trepidation about that? No, not at all, because he was the guy that actually got rid of Graham. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, his name is Barry Trapp. He used to be like the head scout for Central Scouting. And every time I'd see him, you know, I'd, I'd make sure that I thanked him for, you know, for taking care of that situation. And, uh um, you know, uh, I have a tremendous amount of respect for, for that human being that, uh, you know, realized that, uh, that I was trapped and, and, uh, you know, he was, he had some power. And so he went in and, and, uh, injected his power and got rid of this guy. And, you know, I was able to, you know, resume my junior career and, and, uh, have a lot of success. So you go off the NHL and now you're in the NHL and you have that early success winning the Stanley Cup, which is mm-hmm. just a great feeling. Um, but when you look over the course of your career, and I know you love Calgary, the, mm-hmm. the, my best years were Montreal. I played for two other teams. But if, if you were to look back on that career, what what was your – I guess it would be the Stanley Cup year, but other than that, maybe, what was your best year of hockey? What's that you had the most fun? You weren't, you know, <laughs> fighting it all the time. You weren't yeah. that best yeah. year. Well, I would say, <clears throat> you know, the most fun I had was probably playing minor hockey, you know. Uh, uh I moved to a little town when I was six years old and, and, uh, you know, my dad, my dad was a, was a great senior hockey player back in his day. And so he was kind of a hired, a hired gun. And we settled in this little town in Manitoba. And when I got there, it just so happened that the 13 best athletes in this little town were all my age. We were all six years old and we would play together for the next nine years uh, and we had three amazing fathers who became our coaches and, and, uh, you know, they really instilled some incredible values of respect and love and caring for teammates. And they, you know, they taught us about consequences and, and, uh, you know, with those, with those 13 guys, uh, we won three provincial championships in hockey and three provincial championships in baseball. And we were one game away from going to the little league world series. So, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a very winning situation, a winning environment. And, and, you know, that really set me up for the rest of my life because I, you know, once you have the blueprint for success, you have it for the rest of your life and you can imply, you can apply it to absolutely anything and everything that you do. And that's probably the reason why I've had so much success post-career is because I have the blueprint for success. 
and I've had it. I've had it since almost day one, since I, you know, I stepped on the ice, uh, you know, to play this awesome, wonderful sport that, that, uh, you know, that we all, that we all love and, and, uh, appreciate. What is, what is that blueprint? Well, it's just simple, basic, you know, fundamentals, right? Hard work, dedication, um, you know, respect, uh, you know, love and care for your teammates. You know, it's, it's not rocket science. It's just yeah. basic, basic relationship stuff that, uh, you know, because at the end of the day, why do we put our kids in hockey or why do we put our kids in sports? We, we, we don't put our kids in sports to create professional athletes. We put our kids in sports to create quality human beings that we set up for the rest of their lives. Right. You know, and when you think about it, what is there? 800 jobs in the NHL. Mm -hmm. And most of them are taken, right? Because Ovechkin has a 10 year deal. Crosby, Malkin, Taves, Kane, all these guys have 10 year deals. So we have, I don't know, 8 million kids worldwide playing for what 60 jobs a year and that's it there's no more jobs so if you think that your kid is going to be one of those 60 kids every every year who gets a job uh you know uh but ultimately why 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 do we put our kids in those situations while well, we put our kids to create you know quality human beings and set them up for the rest of their life and even if i wouldn't have made it to the nhl I still would have had a very successful life because of the people, you know, they say, you know, you, you are uh, the people who you hang around with. Right. And if you hang around with good people, which we all have in the game of hockey, there's been tremendous people. You know, I would say the greatest leaders in our country come from, you know, come from hockey, you know, the Mario's, the Wayne's, the, the messes, the Sackicks, the Eisermans, you know, I got to hang around with those guys too. And I got to, you know, I got mentorship and I, I, I got to observe how they handled themselves and how they treated people. And they were very humble, caring guys. You know, you look at Montreal situation, like there's like hundreds of those guys, uh, you know, who played for the Canadians. So, you know, I, I feel very blessed and fortunate, uh, to have been able to, you know, and, you know, you look at Calgary, Lanny and Paplinski and Timmy Hunter and Dougie Gilmore. and All Joey character Newland, people. Can, yeah. Great people. And, and, and that's how you win. You know, you don't win with a bunch of guys who are thinking about themselves. You know, you win with a bunch of guys who collectively, you know, really care about each other and, and you know, want to get the job done. So that blueprint, okay, and we all grow up with a blueprint, we – Print. We we learn certain things in our family of origin, uh, good values, morals, all that stuff. But uh, at some point, it gets skewed, and for you, it did. You you got yep. lost. Obviously, the mm-hmm. blueprint wasn't working, and anytime you put drugs drugs and alcohol in the mix, um, it, it can throw that off big time. And you know what that blueprint is, but you get away from it. So. During your career, um, if I guess just your teammates, and I know you, but for the people listening here, how would your teammates describe Theo Fleury on and off the ice? <laughs> how would they describe you? 
<laughs> That's well, what I want to know. Well, <laughs> on the on the ice, a cocky sob for sure. Yeah. Um, talented, know. uber talented. Do yeah. anything to win. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that you know, I, I would say a lot of my teammates didn't like me, you know, but I wasn't there to be liked. Nope. I was there to win. I was there to win, you know. And I was a guy that would drag, <laughs> drag guys into the fight, and they didn't like to be dragged into the fight. Yeah, sometimes always, guys know? didn't. They wanted to <laughs> kind of cruise through the game, and let's get through this one. Yeah. Um, but off the ice, you know, I'm just a really, you know, basic kind of uh, small town kid. But, you know, we're, well, we're why didn't kinda, they like we're, you? Why didn't they like you, though? Because, because because I find you a likable guy. I've always yeah. times I've been around you. I never played on your team, but right. why yeah. didn't they like Theo? Well, because I, I I didn't I didn't follow the you know the the narrative always yeah. right you know yeah. Um, and uh, yeah I, I, it's hard I, you'd have to ask my teammates you know it's a really hard question for me to to ask or to answer, but, yeah. uh, um, but off the ice, you know, uh, I think as, as, as I started making more money, that's when I started to lose myself because money corrupts people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And because I, because I had lost power in my life, I, I could control people with money. Yeah. Right. Understand. And, and I, yeah, and that's kind of when I lost my myself. And then when I went to New York and basically won the lottery there, it was you know it was complete game on one one hundred percent complete insanity, right? And that's and that's when my mental illness showed up too. Was in New York as well. You know, I started having panic attacks and uh, I had you- some I, I had some concussion problems too. And and uh, yeah. And, and I couldn't manage. I couldn't manage my mental illness. I and loved. So I, I, if I can just address it. Sorry, before I forget. I I, I love my time in Montreal. When I get traded, mm-hmm. I was devastated. It almost broke me. I I had yep. a really hard time with that, and I'm not afraid to say it. I'm loyal. Yep. I fucking love that organization. I never wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. So I had a tough time when I left. And and you talked about your teammates in Calgary. Did, did those guys? Even though you can't, I, I guess, say what they thought of you that way, but didn't mm-hmm. did those guys kind of have a fence around you, a bubble around you, and help you? Oh yeah, mm-hmm. get through those years, and then all of a sudden you leave that. Yeah. That 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 must have been like a family unit for you that you didn't yeah. have for so many years. Yeah. Oh, it, it, like it crushed me when I got traded. I was right. I was I was hurt. You know, I wanted to to spend the rest like my whole career in Calgary. Yeah. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, I just got too, I, I, I got too good and then they couldn't afford to keep me there, you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, you know, I would have had to take a significant discount, you know, uh, I actually made 11 million more dollars by going to New York than staying in Calgary. Yeah. So, um, and you know, at that time, you 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 play your whole career to get that one that opportunity payday. to 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 be a free agent, and and, uh, and I don't know so, what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> but but, uh, but yeah, you know, like 
you know, I, I go to New York. Well, I go, I go. What, from what happened with the Colorado thing? So you go to call. You're only there at 15 yeah, games. What happened? 24 there? points in 15 games, right? Hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, so why are you out? Like, of that's like a hundred million so dollar contract this year. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> um, they they just had too many guys that were under contract, right? And yeah. like there was nowhere for me to you know to fit in. They so, couldn't fit in. Um, yeah. And I knew I was only there for a cup of coffee, you know yeah. what I mean? So, um, but, uh, um, yeah, when, when I was in Calgary, like we all lived in the same area, we all carpooled together. Our kids were together all like we spent everything we were, together. We were always together. And then I go to New York and the jungle, you know, the jungle. Yeah, yeah. Half the guys live in the city. Half the guys live by the practice rink, you know, and I remember after the first year, like I was introducing myself to guys at the year end party. Cause it was like, I never, I never <laughs> really, you know what I mean? Because yeah. you, it, it, it was such a different atmosphere. And then obviously it's New York and Madison square garden and, you know, it's not it's Canada. Tremendous, it's a tremendous amount of pressure. And, you know, I, <laughs> I remember I was driving in, to the first exhibition game. Uh, and I was on the, I think it was the, the, it was the garden parkway heading in like almost the west into side the, highway. Yeah. West, west, side, west highway. side highway. And I'm driving in and I look up and there's this, like there's this fucking billboard with my picture on it. Like, <laughs> and I'm just like, Oh my God, am I ready for this? And I was like, no, I'm not ready for this. And, uh, you know, I sign a, I sign that big deal. I score 14 goals the first year I'm in New York. Yeah. 14. And I've averaged 30 my whole entire career up until that point. And, uh, yeah. So, so the hatchets were coming out and the pressure oh yeah. gets on the you. Press, now, the press, yeah. That pressure, obviously, uh, you get to New York. And I remember I got to New York. And here in Montreal, they close the bars at 2, whatever it was, or 3. I got to New York. They just stay open all night. I remember the first night we had a couple of days off after the game. I went to Fleming's and it was a couple of Irishmen friends. And I look at the clock and it's six o'clock in the morning. I'm there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? And now I'm like 30 years old. What, what, I'm 30 fucking years old. I can't, I can't be doing this. And no, that, that part of New York, I mean, it got a lot of guys, but I, I backed off a bit. When did you first um, go into the uh, behavioral health and substance abuse program with the NHL? And how did that come about? Mm -hmm. If you don't mind well, me asking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was uh, it was at the end of my first year in New York. Uh, okay. uh, I can't I think it was Dan. Dan, Danny Cron pulled, yeah. Dan Cronin pulled yeah. me aside and said, uh, you know, we're hearing some rumors about you and da, 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 da. And, you know, why don't you come into the program? We can protect you. Now, you, you. didn't know Nan be Dan before then, did you? Well, I'd, I'd met him at, you know, those information things that yeah. they, they okay. did. So with, someone uh, called him and got him in there. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And, and Kevin Stevens was – in New York yeah. and he was in the program Ooh. at the, at the time. Man. He said, whatever you do, don't, don't voluntarily go into go that into program. The program. So, 
uh, which is kind of oh. interesting. But you know, I went into oh, the pro. I went into the. I went in. I went into the program, and uh, at the end of that first year, I went to my first treatment center, and you know, yeah. started to started to open Pandora's box, and you know, I just didn't have enough tools at that time to be able to stay sober, uh, you know, one day at a time, and so, and so for the next what four years, you know, I was in and out of the program you know, been to four treatment centers. Um, but, you know, I look back on it now and, and there was tools that I picked up in each one of those facilities that I use today, yeah. you know, to, to stay sober. So, but um, up, up until that point, Theo, like, correct me if I'm wrong, like no one knew the like a no. that dark, right. And so that's kind of like, for me, you said it, you're only as sick as your secrets. So do you ever like, mm-hmm. You ever look back and so, you know, like you said, those first three years, it's like on the outside looking in. And if you were to be like, you know, I'm not good enough or I don't have any value, people would be oh, like, yeah. well, people would be like, oh, well, you had 51 goals. What do you mean you're not good enough? <laughs> people don't understand that. Do you right. ever look back and like kind of like not regret, but like what, like how many times there had to be a lot of times where you wanted to talk about it. Right. Or tell somebody, you know, I think that I was so numbed out that I, you know, I was just surviving. You know, I I really wasn't, I really wasn't living. I was just surviving, you know, and, uh, um, just coping one, one day at a time. That was it, you know? And, uh, um, you know, there was so much pressure to, to perform and to, you know, to score goals and get points and all that stuff that, you know, um, and then, you know, once your body gets used to a certain, you know, routine routine you know you just you just go with it yeah you start believing too you're like yeah you start believing maybe yep like Mm -hmm. i I gotta you know i can't change this i gotta i mean i could only imagine yeah Yeah. well and 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 uh you know uh stimulants were a big part of the game you know uh late 90s early 2000s where you know we were taking lots of uh you know, lots of stimulants to get up for games. And then, you know, you, once the game's over, you're so wired that you got to come down. So yeah, you got to go out and drink so that you can actually like sleep for a few hours (laughs) and get up the next morning. So you get caught in that, that cycle and you get caught in that routine, you know, and your body just becomes used to it. And, and, and then it becomes the norm. Right. And yeah. and, And then you feel it today. Yeah, but now, (laughs) now, yeah, absolutely, I feel it today. What you you should see me get out of bed every morning. It's like, it's like, it's it's ridiculous. Yeah, you do pay that price, right? And mm -hmm. so those New York years, um, the turbulence there, and and um, how difficult, like playing and dealing with your coach and the teammates and the staying out late and. Were they up your ass all the time? Were they like staying? No, like, as, sla- as, was Slats there? Was Slats oh, yeah. mm-hmm. on you all the time? No, he wasn't on me uh, at all. You know, okay. I, I I love I love Glenn Sather and and everything that he did for me in New York and and uh, like he he knew about the abuse. He oh, knew okay. About, he, knew he knew about. about did him. you know at the time he knew? No, he okay. told me. He told me. Wow. We had a meeting. What we had a meeting one time, and he, and uh, he says, "I know what happened," you know, and uh, 
He said, any, anything that I can do to, you know, to help make your life better, you know, I'm, I'm here for you and, and, and all that. And so, you know, I have a tremendous amount of respect. You know, I met with Gary Bettman too. And, and, uh, uh, I have a lot of respect for Gary for the way that he hand, he handled me that day. Uh, um, you know, he was really concerned about me, the person, as opposed to me, the hockey player and, and, and all of that. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, it was an interesting time in New York and, and, yeah. you know, because we weren't having success, it was even more magnified, right? We weren't yeah. winning. We didn't make the playoffs, uh, any of those years that, that we were there. And so I, you know, that was frustrating as well because I, you know, I'd come from, you know, uh, winning situations, you know, up until that point. And so it was really, uh, you know, I put I, I put undue pressure on myself. You know, yeah. there, there's not too many five foot six guys who, you know, dominate the NHL or or you know dominate a team. You know, you need a good group of guys around you to complement you to. And uh, for some reason, you know, in New York, I spent three years in my own zone picking up picking the puck out of the net and yeah. handing it to the referee because we just couldn't. <laughs> We couldn't play defense. We couldn't yeah. play defense, and and uh, we our offensive ability was like was insane, but we just couldn't we couldn't play defense, and because we couldn't play defense, we missed the playoffs three years in a row when I was there. So then you leave, and listen, you go to Chicago from New York. Uh, mm-hmm. When you look at careers, and I look. <laughs> You know, everybody's career doesn't end on their terms, right? <laughs> yeah. And everybody's career does not end like Landon McDonald's and Ray Borks. They win a Stanley yeah. Cup in the last game of hockey they ever played at that level, which is mm-hmm. what a way to go out, folks. Yeah. yeah. How, how difficult was that for you? All right, Chicago, what's the end like? You know, you go to Chicago, you get you know, 33 points, 54 games. Again, today mm-hmm. that would – you'd be – you know, getting three million a year anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, again, well, you how, know, you how know difficult what, you know was that? that? And where am I you going? After we won the Olympics in two thousand and two, yeah, I should have retired, right? Because I was done. Yeah, like after after that, but you're hanging like, on. Yeah, well, because I didn't know any better. Yeah. Right? I didn't know any better, and. Uh, <laughs> I was at re- I was in rehab at uh, um, Promises in Los Angeles. So okay. it was kind of like the last treatment center. This place was like it was in the middle of Los Angeles. It was kind of a rundown place, and yeah. you know. And uh, I remember my agent calling. No me more saying, cushy yeah. places for you. <laughs> no, no, God, no, no, no more country clubs. Um, and. Uh, I remember my agent calling me and, and saying, uh, yeah, when you get out of rehab, he says, there's lots of teams that are interested in signing you. I'm like, <laughs> what? Are you serious? He's like, yeah. So uh, I was dating this girl from, from Phoenix. Uh, she, was a, she was a dancer. She was a dancer. No. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so she came, picked me up from rehab we jumped on a plane. I flew to my hometown because I do a hockey school. I was doing a hockey school in my hometown. 
So I go back home, I do the hockey school, and then uh, Phoenix and Chicago were the two teams that I was really interested in. Toronto called a bunch of, like, there was a lot of teams that were interested, but Brian Sutter was in Chicago. Okay. And, 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 and Gretz was in Phoenix at the time. And I thought, oh, so it was Gretz, not the girl that wanted you in no, Phoenix. No, 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 no. Uh, so I met with, I met with Phoenix and, uh, uh, they all got drunk at the table. Like when I was, when they were, and you know, here you are. Yeah. <laughs> like I'm trying to get sober. <laughs> these guys, are, these guys are are all drinking. And Bobby Francis was there actually, and I had Bobby in uh, Salt Lake. He was yeah. uh, the assistant coach with Paul Baxter, so I knew I knew Bobby Francis. And then from Phoenix, we flew back to Calgary, and I met with Brian. And uh, you know, um, Brian had really helped me uh, uh, when Sheldon came out with his story yeah. in 96, yep. Brian, Brian really stepped in and, and, uh, you know, protected me. And so I felt, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of loyalty towards, towards Brian and, and Chicago had actually had 96 points the year before. And I thought this would be a really good situation. They had a lot of great players and Michael Nylander was there and I played with him in Calgary. And, and I think I had, 46 goals and almost a hundred points playing with him. And so I thought maybe we could develop some of that chemistry we had in Calgary together. And so I went to Chicago and, but like I said, I was done. I Did didn't you want to play. Did you stay sober? No, God, no. no. Uh-uh. You were no. ripping it up again. Oh yeah. <clears throat> well, I got suspended. I got suspended again at the beginning of the year. Okay. Until Chris, almost Christmas time. Okay. And, and but it was interesting because when Chicago signed me, I said, I just got out of rehab. I haven't worked out once all summer. Yeah. I said it's gonna take me some time to yeah. get myself in shape. And I said, if you can be just be patient with me and let me, you know, work on my sobriety, get myself in shape and work myself into the lineup. Uh, I said, I'll, I'll get myself ready. I'll do whatever I can to. So I'm, I'm doing that and they're still putting more and more pressure on me. So I just said, fuck it. And I went out one night and went down to the projects and got some fucking blow. And I, I, I disappeared for two days. The fucking uh-huh. Chicago police force was looking for me. <laughs> and Were you in the South side? Were you in the South side? Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Jeez. Yeah. And uh, so I got suspended at Christmas time or till Christmas time. I came back, you know, played, played okay, but I, I still wasn't in great shape. And then Ooh, uh, it froze up again. And then I went home uh, to uh, Santa Fe. I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, I went home and I, I was working out and about halfway through the summer, I'm working out on the, on the, uh, a lip and halfway through my workout i just pressed the stop button and i was like i'm done i don't want to play anymore and and uh and so i i quit and i didn't even call my agent i didn't call the blackhawks and tell them i was coming back or nothing i just fucking disappeared and then went on a went on a hell of a bender for about a year and then and then after that i i got my life straightened around so 
You got so back that, on So the, then you went to Belfast pony. and had 270 penalty minutes. So clearly <laughs> everything was <Yeah>. working. <laughs> well, I was I was newly so I was newly sober. So figured yeah, out yeah, yeah. what are you doing? Fair, enough. Fair enough. Yeah. You had feelings. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 And that's uh, where I got sober. I, I went to Belfast to get sober of all places. And and, and uh, that time in Belfast, how fun was that? When I saw you went there, I was jealous because, I, geez, you know, you my family came. from Ireland. You should have came. I, I should have coached. That would have yeah, been you awesome. With, you should have came with your bucket of pucks. Yeah, yeah I there know. you go. My empty bucket for yeah. my one yeah. puck. But um, You know what? The, the Belfast experience was awesome. Was so amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, the hockey sucked. But but the uh, the experience and and uh, you know the life the life stuff was incredible. You know, it's just a beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. You know, yeah. it's just raw and rugged and and all that. And and uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience. The people there are phenomenal. Like we we would put five thousand six thousand people in that place every night and it was just so much fun and there was no pressure and uh you know there was a bunch of guys from canada there and and i developed some chemistry with a couple of really good players and so yeah it was it was a fun experience and we won we won the league we won the league um uh that year and so yeah it was great good stuff um theo um so you, you retired from hockey. You've done quite a few things. You've written songs. You know, I, I heard you sing. I saw you play guitar. You're really good. Uh, the um, I remember the night when we were playing the alumni. You broke it out. And it, it was cool. I never knew that about you. And yeah. certainly done a lot of things. You're on the Battle of the Blades. Uh, you now have um, that clothing line, Patriot Warrior, uh, mm-hmm. with Jamie Sale, the girl that you were on yeah. Battle of the Blades yeah. with. You have mm-hmm. uh, the Theo and Jamie show Fire and Ice. Um, what, um, it, 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 again, doing that, and it, listen, I think a lot of people certainly um, empathize with you when you come out, or sympathize with you when you come out with your book, and, you know, you exposed everything. You mm-hmm. you, you opened up to the world, basically. And then um, today, and you have a lot of political opinions and, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people um, certainly some uh, probably think you're crazy for it. Right. You're Mm -hmm. nuts. You're all this, Mm -hmm. all that um, because you question things, which I don't have a problem with whatsoever, but do you Mm -hmm. think um, that's hurt your reputation at all in in ways? And, and, And does that hurt you? Because people, I, I, I know people love Theo and they love Theo, the hockey player, and they love the comeback story. But now all of a sudden the politics come out and, you know, yeah. ah, mm-hmm. fucking shut up and stick to hockey. <laughs> and, you know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, what's that well, like? It's it's definitely been interesting. Um you know, I, I consider myself to be a really highly uh, intelligent human being. Um, and, and that comes from all of my experiences that I've had in, in my life. Yeah. You know, life experience. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, 
I consider myself an expert in trauma as well. And uh, uh, I'm also an empath because of my traumatic experiences as well. One of the gifts that I got from, from experiencing all that trauma is that I'm an empath. I feel, I feel energy. I feel energy from other people. And, uh, you know, the, the way I see it is, you know, they, they talk about systemic racism, systemic this, systemic that. Well, uh, what we're going through right now is systemic government abuse at the highest levels, right? And, you know, we already have a traumatized society, okay? Yeah. Before COVID happened, the world was already traumatized. And COVID-19 was the mo- is the most traumatic event that's happened since World War II. So we already had a traumatized society. We added another layer of trauma. And what happened? We saw a spike in mental illness. We saw a spike in opioid use. We saw a spike in suicidal ideation. And then ultimately we saw a spike in people taking their own lives. And so I can put that puzzle together very easily and very quickly, right? And I've dealt with more suicidal people in the last 18 months than I had at any point in the 15 years that I've been doing this work in the field of trauma, mental health, and addiction. And so all I'm trying to do is point out to people that the reason why you're depressed or you're having anxiety or you're having suicidal ideations is because the government is abusing you, right? And as a citizen of Canada, I have three responsibilities. Pay my taxes, stay out of jail and vote. Other than that, I do not need the government involved in my life at any level. I'm very, very capable of taking care of myself. And when the government is constantly telling me that I have to do this and I have to do that and do that, no, that doesn't fly with me. That doesn't fly with me. You know, I have been, for the most part, uh, lived up to my... uh, end of the bargain as a citizen of Canada. And uh, I don't think the government has lived up to their, to their end of the, uh, the bargain. And so I'm just, uh, um, well, you, we all know, you know, playing hockey, there's accountability for your actions, right? We always had to answer to accountability and there is no accountability in this country. None, zero. There's no accountability. And all I'm trying to do is make, the government accountable for the choices and the decisions and the actions that they're making. And if, and if you don't like me because of that, all I'm trying to do is discern the truth. That's it. No, I hear you. All I'm trying to do is discern the truth. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I have a big voice. Yeah. And And I'm going to use it. And and I'm going to use it because I know what it's like to be silenced. I was silenced for 27 years carrying a secret around that I couldn't talk about. And then I talked about the secret. And then all of a sudden, all these people started coming to me, telling me their own story. Right. Yeah. So I'm just doing the same thing politically. I'm not doing anything that I haven't done in the past. You know, I've always been a controversial guy. Right. Every visiting arena I went into, what did they do? They booed the shit out of me, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, 
I, I know what it's like to be a villain. I know what it's mm-hmm. like to be disliked. This is this isn't something <laughs> that that's new, right? But like I said, I'm standing in my truth, and if you don't like it, I don't care. I really don't care, you know. I uh, yeah. And and uh, um, but knuckles you know me we've sat down many times and had you know and had some really incredible conversations you know i'm i'm a decent human being i've had my challenges i've had my challenges i've had uh things that were thrown at me that uh you know that 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 actually made me a better person right all those traumatic experiences made me a better person made me a better human being made me more understanding gave me more compassion gave me more empathy but you know the one thing i don't have compassion for is stupid yeah you know i don't have any compassion for that and uh, i have compassion for pretty much everything else but when it comes to stupid it's like you know uh i don't have any tolerance for that yeah and, so, and i hear you listen and, and not to get all political but uh, again with for me, you look at my situation, you know, I was told to get vaccinated. I had some issues from um, my prior drug use, and I was very concerned about blood clots, and I didn't, yeah. and I got fired for it. I, I paid the, the price that way mm-hmm. for it, and I wasn't happy. Uh, I, I really, uh, I, I don't understand a lot of it from the standpoint of why are you doing this to people uh, why, because of this virus, one that, mind you, is uh, survival by the survival rate is 99. Yeah, 99.7%. 7%. Yep. And so, I've had COVID. I survived COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't had it since. And I just have a problem yeah. with governments. They want to control that, you. They want to yeah, control you. Yeah. Governments that mm-hmm. lie, that lie, and that, quite frankly, are uh, uh, controlled by Big Pharma. And and big business, and uh, I just I, you know, I have no <laughs> empathy toward them at all. I I just I I have no, I I lose b- belief in those people because they constantly lie and tell you one thing while they do another. So yeah. I I certainly understand where you're coming it, from. It, it's it's the greatest fraud that's ever been committed uh, in our lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. And. Uh, all you have to do is is pull up the script from 80 years ago, uh, and it's the exact same script. It's the exact same script that they pulled out 80 years ago trying to take over the world and have one world government, one world order, all that stuff. And, you know, if you can't figure that out, then yeah. I'm sorry. And God forbid yeah. you have a different mm-hmm. opinion. You will be ostracized. Yeah. You can't. You're mm-hmm. ostracized. Yeah. You are labeled. You're bad. Yeah. You're nuts. You're labeled. It's this. And- but, you, but you know what? You know what? I, I'm more busy now than I was before COVID. So mm-hmm. what does that tell you? What does yeah. that tell you? Right? Yeah. Is that, you know, uh, I'm not getting any less speaking engagements, um, you know, I work for a great company now and, and I have my own show and we're building a media company here in Calgary. So, you know, uh, for you. my, my life is great. You know, my life is great. I still help people, um, in any way that I can, anybody that reaches out to me, you know, I, I respond to them and, and have conversations with them and, uh, 
you know, I work for a couple great charities, uh, the Breaking Free Foundation here in Calgary, and then uh, Crohn's, uh, and then a uh, a global mental health organization out of New York called We're All a Little Crazy. Uh, same here, Global Mental Health Initiative. Um, they're a great group of people to work with, and and so, yeah, you know, I. I, uh, I I said about, I don't know, about a year ago, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to get back involved in life. And, and, uh, you know, I got out of my house and got out of my depression and started meeting with people and started hanging around with people. And then all these opportunities came and, and, uh, it's been great ever since. Well, God bless you. And, uh, I have one last thing and I want to go back to the beginning in the beginning of, uh, today, when we started this podcast, um, how would you feel if you made the Hall of Fame? If finally Theo Fleury gets his due, how how would you feel? Where would that stand uh, on your list of accomplishments? Yeah, I think it's probably the the number one thing. You know, there you um, go. I don't think I, I don't think we go into you know our professional careers you know thinking about the Hockey Hall of Fame, but you know once <clears throat> once it's all said and done. Um, yeah, it's the highest honor you can receive because it's voted on by your peers, right? And, uh, um, you know, but but I've had lots of really cool stuff. I'm in the Manitoba Hockey Hall of Fame. I'm in the Alberta Hockey yeah. Hall of Fame. I'm in the Alberta Sports Hall of Fame. I'm in the Aboriginal Sports Hall of Fame, you know. So it's like, you know, I, I think that I just have to be patient and wait my time and bide my time. And, uh, you know, if well, they... If they feel that I deserve to be in there, then I would happily accept, you know, the the uh, the accolade for sure. You should get, well, and then you should give your speech wearing a mask, <laughs> <laughs> with the window on yeah, it. Though. It's just like, hey, Theo, you gotta I'll, have the I'll, window yeah. so I'll you walk, can see your lips. <laughs> I'll walk. I'll walk on the stage in an asbestos suit with a fucking with a fucking uh, oxygen tank. A World oh War back. One mask, gas mask. <laughs> oh, exactly. Theo, listen, thanks so much oh, for man. taking the time, my friend. Great to see you again, and uh, you too. God bless, and we will uh, we'll talk down the road. You ever need me for anything, give me a shout. As most of you know, I'm a dog person. I have a St. Bernard. Her name is Adele. Why do I feed Adele formula raw? Because I love her. I want to provide her with a healthy, well-balanced, locally sourced diet. A diet that consists of meat, chicken, fish, mixed with fruits and vegetables that her 140 pounds requires. I also feed her Formula Raw because it helps her overall energy, it helps her with allergies, and helps strengthen her overall immune system. Dimitri and Nick at Formula Raw have worked tirelessly over the last 10 years to perfect their recipe, and they've got it, because you know how I know? Adele loves it. She never, never misses a meal, and she's a healthy, big, beautiful St. Bernard. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Raw Knuckles podcast. We'd really appreciate it if you'd like, subscribe, and share with a friend.